greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you for the week of Friday, August 28th of the year 2020. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again as we are here closing out the month of August. Yes, friends, somehow we have made it to the end of August, and summer seems to be in the rearview mirror. Yes, and on that note, this week I'm Dennis, the man who blinked and somehow missed all of summer. Right? Doesn't it feel that way, that this was a faster summer than previous years? Yeah, I mean, I mean, on, in some ways, it this whole quarantine, COVID, you know, social distance time has been very slow in many ways, because it's like, yeah, we're all trying to, you know, stay in our houses as much as possible, or like, you know only get together with people in very small groups and, you know, whatever, that, that whole thing. But, like, not really going out to places where there's, like, large gatherings of people. So the normal summer things for me would normally be, like, going to, like, you know, going out to restaurants and farmer's markets and things like that and haven't really been doing those this year. So, yeah, it's just, it's felt very long by not doing those, but also very short because now, in hindsight, the summer's almost over and, don't have that built up cache of memories of like things that I've done this summer. So. Mm-hmm. It, the summer just kind of all blurs together because it's a lot of wake up, go to work, finish work. That's that. Yeah. The, the extra niceties that you can do only in the summertime don't really exist. Yeah. And it's doubly bad too, because you know, wake up, go to work. It's two rooms over. Yeah. You got it bad that way. <laughs> yeah. Not that I'm complaining. I still have a job. This is true. Like, I know a lot of people aren't that lucky, and I'm far be it for me to complain about being gainfully employed, but yeah, it's... It's a statement of reality, it's a, as it's, your reality exists. It's Yeah, it's a weird thing just to kind of... I've never really been in this situation before where, you know, there are people in my industry that willingly do this, and uh, I can see the advantages, but I also definitely see the disadvantages. Mm-hmm. A lot of... A lot of Groundhog Day-esque feelings. Oh, yeah. Very much so. And that can just make everything blur together all in one stretch. And you don't have those uh, extra summer-like things to do. Barbecues at people's houses, even. Yeah, I mean, look, there have been a few of those here and there. So I guess it's not entirely uh, entirely lost. You know, and I've, I've had people over for, like, small groups of people over as well for the barbecues and stuff over here as well, so... Yeah, there's there's that, but no no larger kind of like gatherings really. Like I think I went out to a larger gathering place once and felt immensely uncomfortable the whole time I was there. Like mm-hmm. the whole time I felt like like should I be here? Like should any of us be here? Why are there so many people here? <laughs> it's just, yeah. So yeah. And, and here we are, and so thankfully that uh, that summertime is uh, drawing to a close, and uh, we can get back to the fall when it'll be uh, colder out again, so we have just even more reason to stay inside our uh, domiciles and uh, just hunker down for the winter, and hopefully that will get us that much closer to an eventual COVID vaccine and uh, just baby steps towards life as we used to know it. Yeah, that'll be nice. Baby steps. Yeah. Small, responsible baby steps. Yeah. We'll yeah. see. Fingers crossed. Really, really fingers crossed. You know, I would like things to get back to normal. I'd like to be able to do things again. I'd like to be able to travel places again. You know, 
outside of your own city, outside of my own city, outside of my own province, outside of my own country. Just, you know, I, I know in Canada, there's certain weird, seemingly arbitrary rules set up between certain provinces that don't really make sense to me why you can travel between some of them and not others. But I guess the powers that be have decided that, you know, we just need to open up certain borders for whatever reason. Some, not others. Yeah. And it's for your own good. Yeah. Not that I'm saying I want everything to be wide open, but, uh, yeah, it's weird. It is weird, and it's just going to continue being weird. And I think maybe part of what's made feel time go a bit faster is just the acceptance of it being weird. The initial shock of the first few weeks, first few months of the uh, pandemic uh, shutdown of everything, you know, kind of gave way to acceptance of this is what it is. You know, the, the oh no, what's this, what's going to happen, wariness uh, initially may have given way to a certain amount of acceptance. Yeah. That, oh, we're in this. Okay. So that yearning and pining for, okay, well, did today bring, a, you know, a vaccine or something? And, and that there may have been in those first days. Uh, no, you just kind of realize, no, there, there's not going to be any sort of rescue. No magic bullets. No, you know, snap of a fingers to fix everything and make it, make it right again. We are, we're in the shit. Yeah. In the literal and proverbial shit. Yeah, just to put it very, uh, well, not lightly, but... Crassly? <laughs> Crassly and accurately. I, I don't think that's uh, uh, a thought unique to me to express. I, I'm sure no. others have yeah. shared it out there as well. But in case you're feeling good about things, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for tuning into the arcade where we... Uh, well, we like to break you down a notch every now and then about how you're feeling about... Uh, you know, the, the current state of the world and COVID-19 and all that stuff. Yeah, we like to punch you in the face with reality. <laughs> but uh, speaking of punching, that ties in nicely and dovetails nicely into our first of two ludicrous lead-offs this week. Because uh, if you are unaware, uh, it is a thing in punk music and hopefully you take the lesson from punk music and extend it into uh, reality and your own life to punch Nazis. Yes. I mean... The Dead Kennedys had a song from the late 70s, I think early 80s even, called Nazi Punk's F Off. I'm not going to say the real word. We say shit every now and then, but we try to keep that whatever rating, you know, a little bit. They haven't, they haven't caught on yet that we sometimes say that word. Yes, we, we try to be E for everyone. And then sometimes PG-13. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they have that song, and that goes way back. And that shouldn't be just a punk idea. You shouldn't be a Nazi. Should be a Nazi, period. <laughs> I, I feel that that's not a controversial statement to make. I mean, I'm pretty shocked by your stance. <laughs> when you just when you think you know someone, just when and you they think just you know come someone. out declaring openly, harshly, uh, in such a way that people should not be Nazis. I, I can't say I'm appalled. Good. Can, <laughs> cannot say I'm appalled. Good. I'm I'm shocked, but I'm not appalled. Yeah, that's good. That's the that's the right stand to have. That's the right <laughs> stance to take on this whole matter. Because yeah, you shouldn't be a Nazi. I feel that World War Two should have taught us all that. And if you are of that ilk, you shouldn't be of that ilk. And also, if you are, I hope someone punches you in the face. That's just you know. That's a thing. 
if you're ever having a bad day and just uh, cute animal pictures and doggy pictures and cat videos aren't doing it for you online, just uh, go onto the YouTubes and look for compilations or just even individual videos of Nazis uh, just getting punched the F out. <laughs> it is really entertaining and cathartic. I saw a good one the other day of a video that was taken on a tube in London, I believe, where there was a uh, Nazi uh, piece of shit who was just really braiding, just yelling at everyone in the tube, and three uh, black individuals uh, basically were pass- passing by him to get off at what I believe to be their stop. Doesn't matter if it was or wasn't their stop, they're getting off at a stop. They're passing by him because he's positioned himself right by the doors off the tube. So one guy gets off, another guy gets off, Third guy just kind of casually walks by, and when he's almost gone, just turns around and just cold cocks the Nazi, and he basically flies to the other side of the train, to the other side of doors. He's out. Good. He is epically out. Like, eyes wide open, out. Like, out on his feet. Yeah. (laughs) Was it one of those, like, Star Trek 4 scenes where, like, everyone on the the cart just kind of, like, cheered? I believe so. The video cut off uh, not long after showing him basically out on the ground. So, uh, but I, I choose to believe that there were cheers and applause all around for that person getting knocked the F out. And that's the thing that should happen more and yeah. more. As we see, it apparently needs to happen again in certain countries in North America. <laughs> you know, one of the ones right in the middle of North America, like, you know, South of Canada, north of Mexico. Mexico? Yeah. Um, one of those ones that's right in that very specific location. And, and you know, just to be fair, parts of Canada as well has little tiny pockets of these guys. Certainly. Who so, uh, try to uh, think that they're bigger than what they are and uh, be part of a larger movement. But uh, if you encounter them in Canada, they're not exempt from this. You punch them the F out too. Yes. And then punch as many of them as you can. Yes. Make it a good day. It's like whack-a-mole. <laughs> Make a game of it. Yes. You'll post your score online and challenge someone else to get uh, to beat your high score. Yes. But speaking of games and punching Nazis, one of the classics in the video game world is Wolfenstein 3D. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, for various reasons, one of like the classic video games, I think it was one of the for most people I know, probably one of, if not the first experiences playing a first-person shooter, um, because there just wasn't really many of those out there at the time. I believe there was maybe one or two others, and that was about it. But it was sort of like the the one that sort of started to set the standard. And, yeah, by today's standards, it still looks okay, but it's very blocky and, you know, kind of archaic looking. It's very much of the time, of the early 90s and trying to push the technology and technolog- technological limits as they existed back then. Yeah. And the hardware with the old 386 computers. Um, there's only so much it could do. And of course, it's going to look not great here in the year 2020, the year of our Dark Lord. So uh, that being said, it's still got a certain you know kitsch factor. It's still... Got some enjoyable uh, play factors to it, but of course, being able to go around, shoot blocky Nazis, and just exterminate them is enjoyable and very cathartic. So that leads into our, as I said, our ludicrous lead-off here, because 
One person, one person at a small, small startup company, has taken the idea of Wolfenstein 3D and put a very modern, technologically heavy twist on it. Perhaps in these remote times, uh, you might be at a company, someone may have mentioned the idea of telepresence, uh, the idea where you are, your image uh, and likeness is hosted on a screen that is on a, a robot and just kind of moves about whatever space. Yeah, and you in turn, theoretically, are in control of where that robot goes and, you know, what that robot sees because there's also a camera that, it's very much like something like a Wolfenstein, but in in real life. Like, it's like a first-person shooter game, but you're actually rolling a real robot around, and you're actually looking at real real locations and stuff in real life. So, yeah, it's, it's Wolfenstein-type interactions. Yeah. Now, it's a, it's not a, a widespread technology. It's kind of, uh, uh, I'd say, it's not new, it's not widely adopted, it's not in, in, in its infancy. Um, there are very specific applications where I've seen and heard of it used. The healthcare field, yeah. health technologies, I've also uh, seen stories of used in certain uh, schools and educational departments for maybe students who have some sort of health condition or illness that prevents them from being able to attend classes physically. Yeah. I mean, in most situations, telepresence isn't really needed because, you know, you can just do video conferencing. Like, mm-hmm. video conferencing will cover what, you know, what you want to do nine times out of ten. But still, there are, you know, legitimate things you can do with telepresence. But also, when you think about telepresence, you must have had some ridiculous thoughts of, of like, unnecessary, ridiculous things you could do with telepresence. But I don't know if you ever would have thought of what this person has chosen to do with telepresence. This person has had a very creative and unique take on telepresence because in order to demonstrate their system of telepresence telepresence technology, which is a bit of a tongue twister, so forgive me on that, but they have decided to adopt Wolfenstein 3D and use it in this telepresence experience. So it is, they've developed something called Cardboard Wolfenstein 3D, which is a browser game that allows uh, the user the opportunity to physically knock down soldiers from the Third Reich from a distance using a smartphone and paper and a little robot droid that you, that the user manipulates through a maze. Yeah. So it's a smartphone that is the uh, screen and the camera that is mounted to Essentially, what looks like a mechano-type cart that the user controls, manipulates it through web controls on this uh, browser version of Wolfenstein 3D, and if they encounter a pixelated cardboard-type Nazi soldier, they press a button, and the robot punches it down. Yeah. And they move about the maze continually. Yeah. It's a very involved but very neat idea. Yeah, of course, you know, it's... Like, the funny thing is that you, if you're lucky enough, like, you can basically get yourself into a queue to play it, and if you are playing it, you're you're the only one playing it, basically, mm-hmm. because a real person has to go in once you're done with the level and reset the whole level up and then basically go, okay, next person in the queue gets to do it. So, yeah, so getting to actually play it 
is like a rare crapshoot, basically. Mm-hmm. But if you get to play it, it seems like it would be really fun. I've seen videos. I haven't. I, obviously, I'm not going to try to play it because the hours when it's available aren't really conducive to someone who works full time. <laughs> but during quote unquote normal office hours, yeah, exactly. Uh, so if you are a vampire, then uh, then you have a better chance of being able to play it. So if you want to look more into this, we have links to these items, uh, the official website, uh, even just a video where you can see this in action on our website, thearcadeshow.com. And, but if you want to know for yourself what this experience is like, mark these dates in your phone, write them down, uh, sticky note, whatever you got. So Wednesday, Wednesday, September 2nd, Thursday, September 3rd, those are the next two days when you'll be able to try this cardboard Wolfenstein telepresence experience. And the hours are from, uh, 3.30 a.m. to 12.30, uh, p.m. Central Standard Time, 4.30 a.m. uh, 1 to 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on both days. So, that is basically the dead of night slash wee morning hours slash early morning slash early afternoon. So a good majority of people listening to this will be asleep during those hours. Yeah. Or like, or getting up and starting their day. Or like, you know, at the first part of your day, like, you, like <laughs> at most you might be able to do, you know, a lunch hour, but you and everyone else get in line because Presumably only one person at a time. Uh, granted, it's not going to take you very long to beat the first level of Wolfenstein. No. But you have to beat it. And the the creator of this project, Ross Atkin, who works for uh, a startup company named Smarty Presence or Smart Eye Presence. I, th- I read it as Smarty Presence. Yeah, Smarty Presence is sort of how my brain reads it as well. Um, he has to basically go in and basically reset up the whole level once you're done with the level, you know, punching all the Nazis, including up to and including the boss of the first level, Hans Gross. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a neat idea. Cause I especially like that the little fist that flaps up when you, <laughs> you know, to actually punch the Nazis. But yeah, it's a very interesting idea. And I, I hope this actually does good things for their telepresence software because you know, you need creative ideas like this to basically sell a technology. You do. And this is actually a very good way to uh, convey the idea of telepresence and what your software can do beyond just here. You're in a virtual, you're in a room and you control this robot and okay, cool. But here you can actually do something fun. They've gamified telepresence. Yeah. Now my question it's sort of a practical question. Are either John Romero or John Carmack involved with this company at all? Good question. I did not look into this, so I don't know off the top of my head. Also, what's the legality of this? <laughs> well, you know, that's a good question. And <laughs> maybe uh, there are answers out there. Maybe there aren't. Uh, maybe it's a bit of a gray area. Maybe maybe it's just a, an art project that this person's doing. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, a homebrew art project. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And not something for their actual business company. Yeah, I I might just be using some of this, you know, telepresence technology that I have a company for, but really it's just, you know, a fun little thing to do, uh, you know, Wolfenstein. 
Yeah, you know, I, I just, uh, I, I filed everything under Creative Commons license, so, you know, that totally works, right? And covers all my bases and uh, covers my asses. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, so Ross Atkin and this Smarty Presence company, they are also currently running a Kickstarter uh, for their, to seek funding for their tiny cardboard telepresence robots. So um, imagine basically a Nintendo Labo, but telepresence bots. Yeah. And this is the way that they're demonstrating what uh, they and their company can do, and also having some fun doing it. And also, more importantly, punching Nazis. Absolutely. The most important part. Absolutely. So, here, here. Again, if you are interested in that and need more information, want to see if you can be the lucky person who gets a crack at it for themselves, again, Wednesday, September 2nd, Thursday, September 3rd are the next two days that you'll be able to do it. There was one day already, but it has since passed. It was on Wednesday of this week, so there's no point really telling you that much information because you you can't do anything with it. It's gone. It's over. It's passed. Deal with it. But again, Wednesday, September 2nd, Thursday, September 3rd, from 4.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Eastern on both days. So if you are a vampire or if you are maybe on the West Coast or quite possibly in Europe, those hours seem much more conducive to being in Europe if you add six hours to them. Or if you're jobless. True, too. Or just have the day off for whatever reason. And you just want to be up till all hours, or yet still... Or not up till all hours. You'd have to be up really early. Like, you could go to bed really early, and then as long as you're up on your computer by 4.30 in the morning... True, too. Good point. uh, Those are the options to get first crack at it. Uh, Those are also real options afforded to you. But uh, we move from punching Nazis now to another interesting use of uh, video games and uh, uh, other companies finding ways to uh, use them to, I guess, broaden their appeal, broaden their base, reach out, and uh, maybe touch some new customers and kind of latch on to a very popular brand or product of the time. We are going to speak of a company now that is doing some some different things with Animal Crossing New Horizon. Yeah, so you've heard of the company before. Everyone's heard of the company before. They're the Swedish juggernaut, Ikea. And I thought you were going to say Volvo. <laughs> the Swedish juggernaut, Volvo. You know, everyone, everyone's had a Volvo car at some time in their life, right? It's my first car and my last car. <laughs> for, for that tan-shaped box in, that everyone needs. <laughs> The tan-colored box-shaped car that everyone needs is what I meant to say. A grandpa's car is the best car. (laughs) Uh, Like someone who's trying to be rich and project that they're rich and snooty, but doesn't quite get there. Or is young and just has no money for a better car and hangs on to that first car as long as they can. Yeah, anyways... I won't get into the, the story of the, the guy who I knew that had a Volvo, who was like in his mid-20s or late-20s, maybe. Anyways, let's just say that it was a 1978 car in the year of, like, 2018, which, kudos to it for still running, but not kudos to it for it, him having to, like, you know, miss work several times because his oil pan was frozen more than once. That's a problem. Which should have been like a sign of like, ah, maybe this isn't a good car for Winnipeg in the winter. Mm-hmm. 
also it's 30 years old. <laughs> Anyways, uh, no, they're not the, they're not the Swedish company I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, IKEA, of course. Indeed. That's, um, that's a more sensible company. And yeah, like, while, you know, you might not be a person that gets excited over the IKEA catalog, it's kind of fun to flip through if you're sort of interested in home decor at all. If the older you get, trust me, the more interesting it'll get, unfortunately, which is a thing I'm sad about too. Don't worry. <laughs> but, uh, next you'll start wearing, uh, some beige, uh, khakis just all the time. No. Or some Arnold Palmer style, uh, polyester pants. Just no. they're, they're comfortable and I don't, suspenders too. I don't think so. I, I don't think I'm there yet. Give it another 30 years, <laughs> and maybe, but I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm just at Ikea catalog stage yet. That, that's all I'm at. So, but, um, you know, a regular Ikea catalog is all fine and dandy, but, you know, it's not going to be a way to rope more people in who aren't already interested in an Ikea catalog. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the weird thing about an Ikea catalog. You can't just offer it to someone who doesn't care at all. Like, the people who want an Ikea catalog really are only going to be the people who want an Ikea catalog, right? It's a weird paradox. It's true. So you basically have to preach to con- to the converted. Yeah. So who are, like, what are you going to do to get more people interested in an Ikea catalog? Well, these days, it seems the way to get anyone interested in anything is to slap Animal Crossing on it. And Ikea Taiwan, the Taiwan division, because they're a worldwide company, obviously, and they don't just exist in Sweden, offering, you know, advice to the rest of the world from Sweden. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> from their perch high up on Mount Sweden. Yes, Mount Sweden. <laughs> or sometimes it's like to be called Mortor. <laughs> but, uh, With umlauts. Yes. Uh, anyways, uh, no. So I, the Taiwan division of IKEA, they released several pages of their 2021 calendar, cal- not calendar. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, it's the IKEA pinup calendar. <laughs> yes, look at all those drapes. No, anyways, uh, the <laughs> Ooh, look at all that cutlery and cookware and oh my god, I love those side tables. Good choice for March. <laughs> well, that standing desk is a hot item. Um, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> no, the. Uh, they, they made, they recreated several of the pages from the 2021 catalog, not calendar, catalog, using Animal Crossing as best as they could, using items from Animal Crossing to basically recreate photos in the IKEA catalog. And a lot of people loved it. The internet <laughs> kind of just went a little bit nuts over it. It's different. It's a unique idea and it's tapping into something that is still Tremendously popular. Again, the new Animal Crossing game, one of the best-selling titles for the Switch worldwide, and it's been out since March. Basically, it's been the game of the pandemic. Yeah. And people still love their Animal Crossing. They love getting the items, building building things up, designing them, crafting, and just really getting a nice layout going on, and that actually, that focus on decor and design of your little hovel, your house, plays nicely into Ikea's foray, their MO, their strength as a company, which is what they do, home decor and design items. And it actually makes sense as a pairing. Yeah. And 
I mean, if this is to go any further beyond the Taiwan division of IKEA, I could see this being a very fruitful partnership between Nintendo and IKEA. Not to mention if IKEA is allowed to basically sell some Animal Crossing things in their store. Because, you know, IKEA does have a little bit of, like, you know, a children's section. Mm -hmm. Like, they have, like, stuffed animals and, you know, little children's furniture and stuff. It might be kind of interesting if they sold, like, a generic-looking villager toy or maybe some generic-looking Animal Crossing animals. Things like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of the... Some special, uh, you know, one-off limited edition items from the game coming yeah. to the real physical world. Like one of those, like, bone-looking artifact things or whatever. Mm-hmm. Things like that might be kind of neat. This would be an interesting idea if Nintendo and Ikea choose to explore it further, which, sitting here as, a, as an outside person to any conversations that might be had or might not be had, but this seems like one that would make sense to me in this limited scope. Now, Ikea doesn't really do these sorts of branded products, to, to my knowledge. Most no. of what they sell in stores is their own stuff. Yeah, their own stuff designed by designers that they hire to design stuff for them. Even, you know, with, like, they, they do partner with some other companies and stuff sometimes. Like, I know they, like, that Sonos company that makes those speakers, they did a partnership with Sonos, but they designed a lamp speaker thing that you can get. It is a Sonos speaker, but it's a lamp. I'm not selling it. Like, I, I don't care. Like, I think it just sounds like a Sonos, whatever, if that's your thing, fine. But that I think that's the furthest into, like, any sort of partnerships I've really seen Ikea do. Like, I don't know if they do, like, licensing for movies and stuff. Not that I've seen. Licensing and, uh, you know, other third-party branded uh, wares and items is just not really something you're going to find in a big Ikea warehouse. Again, no. it's their own stuff. And Nintendo doesn't really do these sorts of partnerships either. Nintendo is very careful about who they partner with. Yeah. Like, if they wanted to, there could be a lot more Nintendo crap on the marketplace. Oh, absolutely. It could be flooded, and they could make a lot more money than what they do in merchandise. Yeah, but, you know, they've been very careful and have kind of cultivated their brand to the point where they don't want that level of dilution, which is, you know... A little bit admirable, at least, Mm -hmm. in some weird regard, where it's like, okay, they're a big company whose main aim is to make money, but, like, they have, like, a weird code of honor about how they want to make money, so fine, I guess. They don't want to cheapen their their product and their brand image and brand value. Yeah. Though, arguably, they have done that themselves, incidentally, through the years, with certain missteps here and there, but, yeah. I don't know, just a very interesting little... Thing. But and in IKEA partnership, that is a high-value, well-regarded company. Yeah. They, they could do worse if they were to explore this, which I think, especially given the popularity of Animal Crossing New Horizons and what we've seen over the past six months, uh, there might be something there. People would dig it. I'm just saying, if, if they want money, do that. Hey, yeah. you big multinational corporations. Listen to me. <laughs> I know how you can make money. Throwing it out there. Yes. Despite the fact that you're a billion dollar company and neither one of us is. Well, you know what? You know how they get to being a two billion dollar company? Listen to me. <laughs> yes. 
But on to other news. Yes, on to other news. Ignore all that simple interest talk we could we could bring up and be like, simple interest could easily... No, never mind. Just never mind. It's fine. Ignore it. No place here. But uh, on to the news of the week, which uh, the big news still, the ongoing legal battle between Epic Games and Apple. Uh, the pissing match continues between the two of them. This week, it's uh, made its way actually into a court of law with rulings handed down that favor both Epic Games and... And Apple. So, both won, both lost, and uh, they're still suing each other. Legal matters are still ongoing, and they both still have way too much goddamn money. Yep. So, just throwing that out there. Again, Apple, more than a $2 trillion company now, since it's been a couple weeks since that of- they officially crossed that threshold. They still have more money. But the decisions handed down this week by uh, a judge in a U.S. district court, uh, judge specifically Judge Ivan Gonzalez Rogers. So the matters at hand were one, uh, Apple's removal of Fortnite from the Apple Game Store, and also their threat and yeah, I guess I want to say threat and plan to revoke Epic's uh, developer kit and developer credentials for the Unreal Engine on the Mac and iOS platforms. So I believe Epic Games filed two separate injunctions or one all-inclusive injunction to try and halt both of those actions from Apple. And the decision came down this week that one sided with Epic Games on the fact that uh, Apple cannot uh, basically remove the developer credentials for Epic Games in regards to the Unreal Engine in in... Uh, and I'm surmising here, on the basis that there would be undue harm caused to third parties who have no part in this quarrel. Yeah, exactly. Like, just because someone chose a specific tool chain to make their own game with, it's is it really their fault that the makers of the tool chain went cuckoo bananas crazy and just kind of, like, decided to rock the boat like crazy? Mm-hmm. But in terms of the other filing, the removal of Fortnite from the, uh, I guess, Apple devices, or not, well, removal for, for download from Apple devices in the uh, iOS and Mac platforms, that that is still allowed to proceed because that is directly harming Epic Games, and they're the ones who undertook this uh, kerfuffle with Apple. So, a section here from the judge's ruling says, quote, uh, the court observes that Epic Games strategically chose to breach its agreements with Apple, which changed the status quo. No equities have been identified, suggesting that the court should impose a new status quo in favor of Epic Games. By contrast, with respect to the Unreal Engine and the developer tools, the court finds the opposite result. So, basically, yeah. Epic Games, you did this to yourself, and the Unreal Engine, that's going to harm other people and other companies who have no fight in this, who have no say, uh, and uh, which would affect a lot of uh, lot of developers, because the Unreal Engine is a widely used engine. Just FYI, it's one of the most popular game engines, and Epic Games wants more and more companies to use it, as they have rejigged their licensing deals over the past several months to try and encourage and promote use of the Unreal Engine. Yeah, in in this, uh, I don't know what you want to call this, like, I guess, like, release from 
this ruling, the, the ruling, I guess, um, there's a quote here that says, uh, Apple is hard pressed to dispute that even if Epic games succeed on, uh, the merits of their whole thing, anything that they're trying to claim, uh, it could be too late to save all the projects by third party developers relying on the engine that were shelved while support was unavailable. So yeah, it could tank a lot of projects. Yes. Which is an unintended consequence. And this ruling stays that, but Fortnite still is off, uh, the, well, Mac platforms, iOS and Apple platforms. Yeah. Which is not surprising. No, it's not surprising. I mean, if anything else, yeah, I, I feel like all of our thoughts from last week are pretty well into this. I don't know how much more we need to get into it now, but yeah, they are fairly unchanged in light of these rulings. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll just restate that like it would be nice to see Apple taken down a peg, but you know, rules are rules. And like when you're going up against a $2 trillion company, good luck. Like you and your 17, was it $17 billion? That's a lot of money too, but like it's, you know, Apple can throw $17 billion away and not feel it even a little bit to crush you. So it sucks, but it sort of is the way it is. I mean, like if you can, if Fortnite is popular enough to sort of start swaying sales of iOS devices, that's another thing, but I don't even think that that's the case. Like I doubt it. Uh, Obviously, some people, when this all kind of went down last week, or started the process of going down last week, uh, people tried to be opportunistic and start selling their Fortnite-loaded iOS devices and Apple products on eBay for thousands of dollars. Of course. Of course they did. I don't know if anyone actually bought any of those devices for those ridiculous prices, but hey... Why not? It's a, it's a free and open economy, so it's worth a shot. But, uh, so the rulings were not really that much of a surprise. But one thing that was a surprise was, uh, that came out just before the judge issued her rulings was the fact that there was another company, another large technology company that decided to get into the fight and, uh, sent the court that was deciding these issues, sent them a statement on Epic Games' behalf siding with them in their dispute with Apple, and Microsoft has waded into this fight, and they are on the side of Epic Games. Well, I don't think Microsoft is on the side of Epic Games. Microsoft, like they've been trying to push the image of the last couple of years ever since buying GitHub, is saying that they're on the side of developers. I, I think Epic Games is just sort of like the catalyst for all this, and like they're the ones that are causing all this mess, but they're on the side of developers because when, like, I, I think this was before the court made their initial kind of rulings. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's just the first step in a long process. This is not the last we've heard of this. Certainly not. Um, but before that ruling came out, after Apple told, like, made very public overtures saying that they will be removing its access, you know, to Epic, that they'll be removing Epic's access to the Apple software development kit by August 28th, 
meaning it will no longer be possible for developers using Unreal Engine to support Apple platforms. Microsoft slammed that decision, uh, claiming that that decision basically abandons their customers and potential customers on the iOS and macOS platforms um, or forcing them to choose a different game engine when preparing to develop new games. You know, like, because you might have a game that's like 80% done. And by doing that, you've basically just destroyed someone's work. It's like now they have to like release for all the other systems and then hope that maybe in time they can maybe get something together for Mac OS. Like it, it might not even be that big of a deal, but like on phones, that's a big deal for sure. So yeah. So Microsoft is basically on the side of the developers. They're saying like, that's like, yeah, get rid of Fortnite, get rid of anything made by Epic. Sure. But like, don't, don't get rid of like the tool access. Understandable. Still a surprise to me to see Microsoft wade into this fight. Well, it's, it's completely, there's no reason for them to wade into it other than just like as a purely, you know, opinion thing. Like they have no skin in this race. They don't. And, uh, outlining Microsoft's position in the legal filing for the court that was ultimately shared online, Kevin Gamble, who is the general manager for gaming developer experiences for Microsoft said, quote, Microsoft has an enterprise-wide multi-year Unreal Engine license agreement and has invested significant resources and engineer time working with and customizing Unreal Engine for its own games on PC, Xbox consoles, and mobile devices, including iOS devices. For example, Microsoft's racing game Forza Street is currently available on iOS and utilizes Unreal Engine, denying Epic access to Apple's uh, system development kit and other development tools will prevent Epic from supporting Unreal Engine on iOS and macOS and will place Unreal Engine and those game creators that have built, are building, and may build games on it at a substantial disadvantage. Okay, so fair enough. So, I, so they have some skin they, they in this. They have some skin in this. It's not like to the degree where like Force is going to make or break Microsoft or any mm-hmm. of their games are going to make or break Microsoft by not having them available on Mac, but or on iOS, but yeah, I mean, like, that still sucks, like, it's like, hey, no, like, we have users on those devices, and they'd probably be pissed if they couldn't play them on those devices anymore, like. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one thought I had wh- when this came out, and Microsoft uh, got their name out there in this fight between Epic and Apple Games was the fact that a couple, I guess a couple weeks, a couple months ago, time's a blur, sorry, but... Uh, Microsoft is in the process of rolling out Project, uh, I believe, xCloud, their cloud-based gaming platform, where it doesn't matter what device you have, you'd be able to play whatever games on your device with all, of course, the work done server-side. And they attempted to roll it out for the iOS platform, but it was denied and rejected, I believe, on the basis that while Apple would uh, have... I guess, some way to vet the platform for it. The platform is really just a portal to play a bunch of other games, and Apple would have no real way to vet those other games. Yeah, and there, therein lies, I think, I think the ultimate goal of what Epic might be trying to do with Apple's platform. Like... I don't know, like, it's sort of like a, 
a common thing in, you know, a lot of like development circles these days to be more towards like open tech and open standards, you know, and like leaving things more open. But I see where Apple's coming from because like Apple is very traditionally like protective of their hardware and like their software together, like they fine tune everything to the point where it works really well together to the point where like if, if, if you've ever owned a Macintosh computer, you know that you're going to get probably a good 10 years out of a Macintosh computer Mm -hmm. of it feeling snappy and responsive and stuff. And then one day all the updates will stop. But like up to that point of it getting updates, it's going to feel responsive and snappy because Apple knows exactly what hardware it's dealing with when it can fine tune its software to interact with that hardware. Because there's only so many models and every year that get released. So they know, okay, this one has this chipset. This one has this memory in it, whatever. There's, you know, we don't need special drivers. We don't need special this. We don't need special that. That's just what it is. So same thing with phones. Like Apple has, you know, very specific requirements for when you're releasing apps on the phones because like they have to perform within certain parameters and they test them. Believe me, Mm -hmm. like I've, I've gone through the app store submission process before and I've had stuff denied because I've gotten screenshots back showing like, Hey, we used this one device that you didn't consider. They didn't say you didn't consider it because I had something misclicked and had to go through a whole rigmarole of getting it. Anyways, it's a whole thing where like, if you're not careful, it can bite you in the ass and there's like a lot of different configuration things that happen, but I've had an app delayed because they were saying like, they've given me a screenshot back of like what it looks like when they run it on. Oh, I don't know the iPad three or something. When you, you say, Oh, it supports iPad two. It's like, Oh, well I ran on the iPad three and this is what it looks like. Oh crap. Because I accidentally, I accidentally put, click this other thing saying future versions or something. Oh shoot. Well, whatever, but there's actually going to be a person that goes through and tries your app. So there's a real vetting process, which is why it's not instant and it takes a few days. Mm -hmm. So I see where they're coming from because they don't want people to start thinking their phone is slow when playing a game or something because they, they want to control that every level of the experience. And by opening it up to just basically say, yeah, well, whatever, we'll just, there'll be a selection of games who knows at any time they're going to go, well, wait a minute. How are those games going to run on that device? Like, yeah, it's fine in Android land where like, who knows what you're dealing with hardware wise or developer wise or whatever else, like what version of Android you're running, who knows? Like that's fine for over there. Like people are used to things crashing a little more often, but over here, Oh no, like things have to be up to Apple standards. So Mm -hmm. I get it doesn't mean it's right but i get it like it's it's all about an image thing absolutely so, like i i understand it just kind of struck me as uh, a moment of oh the enemy of my enemy is my friend <laughs> yeah though I, I think the days of thinking of microsoft as a big evil company are maybe you know they're not the big evil company anymore they're not they're not part of fang so no. No, they're, they're, I guess, Fang plus one or, they're like the plus one or plus two when people speak of Fang plus yeah. one or plus two. But even then, 
Fang is the big evil companies. Yeah, and Microsoft has done a lot. Like, they don't... The Microsoft of the 90s facing antitrust lawsuits and stuff is not really the Microsoft that exists now. They're a lot more developer-friendly. Now, don't get me wrong. They're still a big company, and you shouldn't trust a big company with too much of your information or anything like that. But still, like, in terms of the big companies, they're not the worst. This is true. We've seen uh, the behavior of some of those FANG companies. Again, if you're not familiar with what FANG stands for, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, those are the biggest tech companies uh, with some of the highest market capitalizations on the stock market, U.S. stock market, and they are regarded as some of the most successful ones, the uh, the ones that really have been driving a lot of the growth in the U.S. economy and uh, driving up the uh, record NASDAQ average uh, prices and indices for the past six months to a year to two years. So, yeah, you know, five or six, five to seven companies really have been driving everything more so than the next, like, 493. Which yeah. is crazy, but it's, it's that's true. what it is. It's true, yeah. And so that's just the reality, but, yeah, I was kind of in, kind of entertained when I saw, oh, Microsoft joining in. Oh, they're still bitter against Apple, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Can't blame them. I hold grudges, too, so yeah. I know what that's like. Yeah, an elephant never forgets. <laughs> Or something. It just bides its time. Yeah. It never forgets to kill. <laughs> but, uh, but speaking of money and uh, people using money for good, uh, let's uh, just do a quick recap and rundown of the Summer Games Done Quick event that ran last week, concluding last weekend. Uh, Summer Games Done Quick is the, lit- literally as the name says, the summer version of the Games Done Quick uh, charity group uh, speedrunning telethon. This one kind of got rejigged a little with the, uh, I guess, games for COVID relief done quick. Uh, brief, quickie weekend telethon was uh, hastily put together, not in a bad way, just out of necessity, earlier in the spring. So this one was supposed to be a couple of weeks ago, but it ran last week instead, but still raising some good money for a very worthwhile charity that perhaps is easily forgotten about as uh, our local world around us has, in some parts of North America and Europe and, and wherever you are may seem in distress, but Doctors Without Borders was the primary charity recipient of funds raised through this telethon event, and they will be receiving $2.3 million from Summer Games Done Quick 2020, which is a very good number. Uh, unfortunately, down from last year, the Summer Games Done Quick 2020 raised just over $3 million, uh, this year's event raising just over two million, so a, a roughly million dollar difference from one year to the next. But again, as I said, there was the COVID relief done quick telethon a couple of week or a couple of weeks ago, uh, and maybe just people's financial situations has been negatively impacted over the last six months. Yeah, which is entirely possible. So, uh, not. It's entirely understandable to me that the fundraising is down, but still 2.3 million for Doctors Without Borders is a very good amount. That's still damn good, yeah. Absolutely. And it, uh, so there were donations from 33,639, uh, viewers, uh, came in from all around the world. There was 148 speedruns, uh, 
an average uh, donation of $68.71. So that's uh, some good, respectable figures from everyone involved. And the next two Games Done Quick events, as they exist now, they can always kind of quickly put some of these together in response to whatever disaster might strike next. But the uh, there's the next one scheduled for November, November 15th to the 21st. And uh, that one is going to be Fleet Fatales and the traditional winter one, Awesome Games Done Quick, now set for January 3rd to the 10th of 2021, which we are not that far away from. <laughs> Surprisingly, we're about six months away. Yeah. If less than six months away, which is, huh, how did that happen? <laughs> yes. Goddamn. Absolutely. But uh, as... Uh, you know, we mentioned, you know, blink and you miss it. Uh, we're getting into the fall season. Of course, there's going to be big games released in the fall, as there always is. There's going to be the new consoles released in the fall, the new PlayStation, the new Xbox. Those will get a lot of attention, a lot of buzz, and have a lot of marketing budget behind them. But we're here to kind of sing the praises and let you know about one that's going to be coming out this fall that is worth your attention because of its lunacy. Yeah, it doesn't... I don't think they're going to have a big marketing budget, but it's sort of been going a little bit viral because of how crazy it is. And we like to talk about crazy things. Um, you know, like uh, Desert Bus has basically... A whole subculture has basically cropped up around Desert Bus. This That weird cult game that was an anti-game, basically, included in Penn & Teller's... Smoke and Mirrors, I believe it yeah, was. Yeah, for Sega CD. Sega CD. A game that was never actually released, but like the a dump of it. Like I think it was completed, but never released or something, or was mostly complete. And someone found like a dev kit disc or something. Anyways, if it, you're not it made its way online. It made its way online, and you can play Desert Bus, which is, you know, if you've never heard of Desert Bus, it's basically you're playing like, you know, a bus that doesn't, control very well, like has an alignment problem, but driving in real time between uh, Las Vegas, where is it? Las Vegas and Los Angeles or something? I believe so. So it's like an eight-hour drive, and you're, it's a whole, <laughs> you get one point for every single time you complete the round trip. But if you crash or like you'll veer off-road or something, you have to wait in real time for a tow truck to come and then wait in real time for the tow truck to tow you back to the nearest city. So it's like a mundane, like, like it's sort of like a precursor to, like, slow TV or something, but in, like, video game form. Um, and there's a new game coming out very much in that vein, which is why we were, I brought up Desert Bus, and, you know, I was talking about that for so awkwardly. But there's a new game um, coming out called Airplane Mode, which is a simulator that lets you live the highs and mostly lows of a six-hour economy class flight in first person and in real time, which is coming out for PC and Mac this upcoming autumn. Exactly, and it's a six-hour, I believe, transatlantic flight. Uh, so I believe you're going from... Uh, the, the initial main flight that you're doing is from JFK Airport in New York to Reyk- uh, Reykjavik in Iceland. So that is your six-hour flight, but you'll also have the option 
to go on a shorter flight if you don't have six hours to devote to this experience. You can take a two and a half hour flight going from JFK to Halifax. Now, no word then if you can go from Halifax to Reykjavik to break it up, but uh, as the developer Hosni Aju says, quote, six hours can be a big investment of time, so we're happy to offer this shorter flight option for players who want to experience airplane mode on a tight schedule, <laughs> end quote. So airplane mode is, one, a really clever and great title for this ch- for this game. Two, literally you are first person in your seat on an airplane. I believe you're at least in the window seat of your row, and you will have the seatback entertainment screen in front of you. You'll have one of those in-flight magazines. You'll have the cardboard safety card. Uh, you'll get served a meal. Yeah, well, according to uh, Eurogamer, like they list off a whole bunch of things here because uh, I guess they must have had a sneak peek at the game. But they were saying uh, you'll have to contend with fellow passengers, cabin crew, questionable in-flight cuisine, and randomized events like delays, turbulence, bad Wi-Fi, and screaming babies, while you, as the as the uh, publisher AMC puts it, stare in silence at the slowly passing clouds and try to make time go faster through sheer force of will. <laughs> And Who like, hasn't had that experience on a plane? And there's a really fantastic uh, additional quote here that kind of, you know, really really lets you know, like, the overall tone that they're going for with this game. From AFC, from this release, they say, uh, other flight simulators give you high-definition cockpits with a billion switches and dials, but airplane mode is the only one that offers a realistically rendered seatback tray. <laughs> so... Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So there's already a uh, Steam page up for the game if you want to see more pictures of it. I believe there's a, a an introductory trailer to the game as well that you can watch and get a better idea of what this experience is going to be like. Uh, but just so you know, you're not totally... It's not a simulator for staring out the window of an airplane for six hours. As I said, you will have some stuff. You'll get a pen, a book, headphones... Uh, like I said, the, the information card of the plane, the seatback entertainment system, uh, a flight safety flight safety video, satellite journey tracker, and quote hit movies of the nineteen thirties. Yeah, because I guess they would all be kind of in the public domain now, mm-hmm. which is awesome, fantastic. I sure hope there are some silent movies in there too. Yeah, like some uh, you know Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently there's also in-flight magazines with articles, crosswords, and Sudoku puzzles, <laughs> which you can then do with your pen. Yep. But if you fill it out, you know, as soon as you sit down, well, you've still got another five and a half hours. Yeah, better watch some of those movies from the 1930s. Ah, <laughs> oh, fantastic. So, again, it's coming out this autumn on PC and Mac. Uh, there's no official... Like release date, uh, they simply announced the release window, which is autumn. Uh, once we have more details and a more specific release date, uh, we will let you know because this is a game that bears further discussion because it is a ridiculous idea. And I think it's one of the uh, few times we have seen someone t- really take up that mantle in recent years of Desert Bus. Yeah. Desert Bus has... Long kind of been an anomaly of its uh, one-off slow game play style where you're not really doing anything. 
But yeah, exactly. I mean, like it's 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 literally been off on a desert island. Yeah, you can forgive the desert pun, but uh, yeah. So, airplane mode, great title, interesting, uh, interesting looking game. Uh, we'll let you know more as we learn more. But as as I said, it's a game that bears further discussion, and I believe at this juncture in the program, we should take some time to uh, to expand on some old things that are uh, bearing and warranting of further discussion. Uh, I think it's probably that time in the show when we get into the blast from the past. Indeed. That portion of the program where we like to take some time to uh, let you know about some pieces of media entertainment that are celebrating milestone anniversaries. These could be games, TV shows, movies, uh, music albums. Back when people listened to music albums and bought them on CD and paid way too much for them. Yep. I've got my fair share of those. <laughs> but can't get rid of them because they, they paid so much for them and you can't get them anymore. So you, you still have to hold on to them. So, you know, those things. But we don't have any music albums to talk about. But, you know, you know... All of you out there who have your CD collections when you paid way too much for an album, only to see it go on sale a couple weeks later, only to see music ultimately devalued by the digital landscape we live in now, and the ease of which there is to just get stuff without paying for it, or, you know, have someone do it for you, whatever the case might be. (laughs) Uh, No, in fact, we'll be talking about uh, three items to our movies, one is a game, though there is a thread to connect the two movies, despite a uh, 15-year age gap between them. Yeah, which is why I think we should probably talk about those first and leave them together. Absolutely. So, uh, do you want to go from youngest to oldest, oldest to youngest, or just kind of uh, stir the pot and just kind of mash them all together? I feel like it makes sense to go oldest to youngest. Like, we'll, we'll start at the in the 90s, in 1995, 25 years ago. Um, the world was a different time. Sure, it was and a simpler t- time. Antonio Banderas was a young man. He, um, a younger man, I should say, um, just really establishing himself as you know who he who he was, like you know when a major leading actor in North America. Yeah. Um, but also another person who was just starting to establish himself was a young kind of maverick director named Robert. Rodriguez. Indeed. He had some success prior to doing Desperado with a... Uh, oh, yeah. The, the, film, the first film oh, is Desperado. Shit, yes. <laughs> the first film is Desperado. We're talking about... So I jumped the gun there. That's fine. I I took too long to say it. We're, we're talking about Desperado first. It's 25 years old. And uh, so prior to Desperado, he had, uh, he had a fair bit of success on the indie circuit with uh, his first movie, El Mariachi. Yeah, which is the first in what was called the Mexico Trilogy, which is a terrible name, but makes sense. It's a similar, it's kind of like his, the good, the bad, and the ugly, or like, not the good, bad, the ugly, the dollars trilogy, really. Yes. So it's like El Mariachi, followed by Desperado, and then eventually, uh, uh, Once Upon, Once a, time upon a Time in Mexico. Mexico, you know, similar kind of character, like Antonio Banderas is sort of like, in many ways, is kind of like Clint Eastwood's Man Without a Name character, but he was like, you know, the, the the Spanish guitar player guy who in the first movie was called El Mariachi. But anyways, Desperado, um, 
is the second, but it's the first one that stars Antonio Banderas as the mariachi, the yes. uh, the rogue badass uh, gunslinger who who can play a mean guitar as well. Yes, whose guitar case also has shotguns in it, <laughs> like all good guitar ta- cases do. I mean, none of mine do, but I guess they're not good guitar cases. So uh, I guess you're not a professional. Yeah, I'm not El Mariachi. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a fun, action-packed, very genre romp. Uh, this is a very Robert Rodriguez movie um, starring. And this is Robert Rodriguez when he first kind of got a bit of a budget. Yeah, and could have like some name actors in it because. Like I said, his first movie was simply called El Mariachi, which was very indie. He's basically fresh out of college or still in college age at that point when he made El Mariachi. And he had, he had, you know, an actor he could afford play the titular role of El Mariachi in his first movie there. Gets a bit older, has had some success with the first movie, has a bit of a budget, gets Antonio Banderas to play the role of El Mariachi. So he recasts it. But at least in this movie, he has the actor who played his first mariachi in a cameo role. Yeah. But he also has arguably what is a who's who of, well, Mexican-American actors. Like, really in this movie, like, it's, it's, this, this is sort of like, really almost like the establishing movie for like, this is who Robert Rodriguez is as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Like, regardless of whatever else he does, there's going to be this type of energy to everything he does. A lot of name actors you will recognize doing yes. ridiculous things. Yes, like Joaquin Dalmeida, Salma Hayek, Steve Buscemi, Cheech Marin, his quote-unquote friend Quentin Tarantino, who was his friend, just, you know, one of his filmmaking buddies. Yeah, they the met time. on the indie film circuit slash film festival circuit. Because when Robert Rodriguez was going around going around showing El Mariachi, Quentin Tarantino is going around showing off Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. So this is like the start of both of their careers around this time. So like both of them were not really who we know them to be now. But yeah, it's this is sort of like the the beginnings of what we saw. And yeah, like lots of and lots of other people, but then also one of his cousins who I think you know, he was just giving a shot because he was a tough-looking guy uh, whose name is, you might know him as Danny Trejo. If you don't know that name, don't worry, we'll be talking about him a lot in the <laughs> next few minutes. Um, but yeah, like, this is this is very much like the establishing shot. If, you, if you're not at all familiar with Robert Rodriguez, yeah, you can watch El Mariachi, but like, or like, yeah, like, really, you should watch Desperado. Yes. Like, it, it basically is like, Oh, okay. So, like, this is his first major movie. Like, this is what this guy could do with money and good actors. Yes. And yet, even still, Robert Rodriguez can still work on small budgets. Oh, and he often likes to work on small budgets. Lesser, less, I mean, it's easier to do what you want with a smaller budget. Yeah, because less people are involved, less, you know, people have a say in what you get to do. But, yeah, this is... um, all I have to say is like it it's sort of like a great first foray if you're not familiar with Robert Rodriguez because then he over the years then he had like a ton of great movies like that all sort of have like 
are, are unashamedly like Mexican in nature. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it's really cool that like he's kind of like brought some of these like actors and actresses out and made them kind of like mainstream stars in the English world, like Salma Hayek and all these people like that too. Like it's, it's really cool. And yeah, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I like Robert Rodriguez and you know, he's done some really cool stuff over the years, done some really weird stuff over the years. But one of the, like the, the next movie we're going to talk about jumps ahead in time to the year 2010, which it blows my mind that it's already 10 years old. Yeah, you um, blinked and thought you missed all of the summer. Blink and you missed 10 years, apparently, too. Yeah. Blinked twice and missed 10 years. Yeah, so one of the weird things that I didn't realize until after it was all pretty much done was that Robert Rodriguez was the guy behind all those Spy Kids movies, mm-hmm. which you know I've never watched, but I feel like I should go back and watch. Just, you know, as a fan of Robert Rodriguez, it's just like, well, what's he going to do with a kid's movie? Like, it must be ridiculous. Well, he managed to work in some ridiculous actors at uh, points through them too. Yeah. Because one of the, from what I understand now, don't hold me to this because I could very well be wrong about the context of this, but um, in spy kids, one of the, uh, one of like the, the big major movies in the spy kids universe is machete. And machete is like a big budget action movie star kind of like a Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever, but he's, you know, Danny Trejo, you know, like hardened, you know, mean looking Danny Trejo, who actually seems like a really cool guy in real life, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, like Danny Trejo is a very distinctive looking guy. Like you, if you don't know his name, Google him, then you're going to go, Oh, him. Yes. Oh yeah, of course. I know who he is, but yeah. So he was just sort of like, there was like this silly little trailer for Machete or like, like, you know, you'd see Machete referenced in Spy Kids. And then when Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez did their Grindhouse double feature where, you know, uh, Quentin Tarantino did Death Proof and then Robert Rodriguez did Planet Terror. Part of the experience, like, I actually don't know because I don't have it on DVD or anything or on Blu-ray or anything, but the experience when watching it in the theaters was that they had a legitimate intermission in the middle of the two movies mm-hmm. and they had a bunch of fake trailers put together by a bunch of their filmmaker friends for movies that did not exist that, you know, they, that were just sort of like genre parodies of things that you would have seen in the Grindhouse movie days. Like, uh, like Eli Roth did like the slasher film, but I think it was called Thanksgiving or something. Yeah. Some, some sort of Thanksgiving holiday themed one. Like, I think uh, Rob- it actually was called Thanks... No, Thanks Killing, I think, is what it was. It was, like, a super cheesy, like, takeoff of, like, a Wes Craven-type movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, a Nightmare on Elm Street or whatever. And then... Rob Zombie, Rob Zombie had one had there. one. I think it was, like... Were- werewolf strippers, werewolf of- strippers of the SS or something ridiculous like that. Like, whatever. Like, some very goofy-looking Rob Zombie movie. But then... Robert, like, also Quentin Tarantino directed one. I don't remember which one Quentin Tarantino made. Uh, I don't recall off the top of my head either, but there's uh, another, but there were two of these trailers that ultimately became real movies. One, we will speak more about and elaborate more on, but the other one, I just want to work this in before you forget, is Hobo with a Shotgun. That's right, that's right. 
<laughs> I had forgot that that was a trailer in that movie, but it won a contest, uh, I guess that was put on before, uh, the Grindhouse movie double feature was ultimately released to have this trailer featured in it. And then it was just so ridiculous that it got made into a real movie and it was done by a, I believe a pair from Nova Scotia, a pair of guys from Nova Scotia made the trailer and then they got to make the movie and it's a very Canadian movie. Oh yeah. But also st- starring, you know, Rucker Hauer, the late Rucker Hauer and, you know, one of his many incredible roles, super Canadian movie, right down to like the fact that they used like the end song that, you know, used to play over the end credits during the raccoons, <laughs> a very distinctly Canadian cartoon over the end credits of Hope with a Shotgun. Like, it's like as soon as it started playing, I was just like involuntarily just like all like start singing along and like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. This movie's ridiculous. But yeah, I forgot all about that. So that's one of the yes. two movies that got made or two uh, trailers that were made into real movies. The second one is this one we shall now elaborate more on. Yes. It is one that was done by Robert Rodriguez and it was for a movie called Machete. Yes, starring Danny Trejo as, you know, as Machete, the titular character, as this absolute badass, uh, take no nonsense, you know, kick ass at every turn type character in a giant, ridiculous, you know, very genre action movie. And it was completely ridiculous, and I loved every bit of it. Yes. And when they said Machete will return in Machete 2, I was super happy that that wasn't a lie. <laughs> like, that's not a spoiler. It's a 10-year-old movie. There was a second Machete movie that came out. Called and Machete I, Kills. Yes. And I love that movie, too. And I really wish there was more Machete movies. I'm still waiting for Machete Kills again in space. Yes. <laughs> I think which, everyone's waiting for that. Yes, which I don't see any reason why Robert Rodriguez wouldn't make that movie. Seems up his alley. Sure does. But, uh yeah. It's... So Machete is the fleshed out version of the trailer. And you might be wondering, how do you build a movie around like a two minute trailer into like a two hour film? Well, the answer is you throw in a whole bunch of name actors. You throw in, yeah, a ton of name actors, tons of them, like Danny Trejo, obviously Michelle Rodriguez, who at this point had been in a few Robert Rodriguez movies, um, Robert De Niro, Jessica Alba, Steven Seagal, uh, Cheech Marin again, Don Johnson, Lindsay Lohan, um, Tom Savini made an appearance because you know if you're you're not really a film nerd unless you're friends with Tom Savini apparently. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's one of the hallmarks. Yeah, like just tons of people in this movie. I mean, <laughs> like Cheech Marin is a priest who has some pretty badass moments. Yep, but Danny Trejo as Machete. Seals the movie. I think this is one of the rare times I can recall seeing a movie completely starring Danny Trejo, and it's not some straight to DVD release. Yeah, like it was. It it did pretty good at the box office too. I mean, like he had a ten ten and a half million dollar budget, and it made forty four point one million dollars. So, by all accounts, it's a success. Absolutely. Uh, even if it's you know, wasn't a commercial success. I dare say it would have been destined to be a cult success. Oh, absolutely. Just because a of the concept B the fact it's done by Robert Rodriguez and C 
It's a Danny Trejo vehicle. It's well, a also, Danny Trejo action movie. It's one of those... It's very much in line with, like, classic exploitation movies, right? Where, you know, it's the same reason why Black Dynamite worked so well. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the exact same reason. People from a certain community, in the case of Black Dynamite, the black community, you know, who grew up watching black cinema, wanted to make a tribute to all the movies that they loved growing up. And it's like, I think Danny Trejo, or I think Robert Rodriguez had a similar idea, except I don't know how much Mexican cinema was like this, but I assume it was them doing Mexican cinema for North America. So making a exploitation movie. Yeah, but it works. And I, I think like, because like, yeah, he, the one cool thing about Robert Rodriguez, well, there's lots of cool things about Robert <laughs> Rodriguez, but like, he's very like fiercely, you know, he doesn't mess around with representation, which is cool. And it makes it really legit. You know, when you see, you know, a guy who's like, I'm Mexican, my family's Mexican. I want to see Mexicans on screen. Even the fact, you know, the fact that we're living in America now, you know, like it's not, you're not just, he's not just including them for no reason because that's like, that's the people he knows. So like, it's, it's like, yeah, of course he's going to have more, more Mexican people in his movies because that's just who he grew up around. And that's what his world looks like. And I think it's really cool that like, you can watch these movies and go, yeah, it makes sense. And it's not just some weird, like, Oh, you're just shoehorning people in for no reason because it's a weird Hollywood thing. But no, he doesn't work within the Hollywood confines of movie making. No, like he shoots almost primarily in Texas or almost entirely in Texas. I should say not to mention like when he was making, uh, Sin City, he basically gave up his director's card. So he was allowed to co-direct the movie with Frank Miller. Not that I'm, (laughs) <laughs> defending or, you know, praising Frank Miller at all, he turned into kind of a crazy person after 9-11 for various reasons, but, you know, everyone in America seemed to kind of it affected different people in different ways, and I can't really blame anyone for that, but still yeah, like, that's a ballsy thing to do if you're, you know, like a like a an accredited director with, like, you know, the Directors Guild for you to basically turn in your card to go, fine, I'm not going to work within the Guild then. Mm-hmm. It's like, he still made the movie and it was still a huge success. Like that's crazy. Absolutely. And, uh, for a period of time on his DVDs, Robert Rodriguez would include like a 10 minute film school, uh, additional like vignette. Yep. And he shoots fast. Like, Oh yeah. He shoots fast. A lot of his work is either like just quick, easily accessible locations or like green screen, like Sin City, for example, all green screen machete, basically all around stuff. He can easily get access to in Texas quick, cheap, and again, yes, he's featuring a lot of his friends, yes, they serve the purpose of representation, but also they just might be available and around him and able to work at that time. Yeah. Like, because he's shooting quick, quick, quick. Yep. And that's his style, and it works, but at the same time, you make some exceptions, and you work around the schedule of Steven Seagal if you have to, to get Steven Seagal as the badass villain. Or Robert De Niro. Robert, you know, one of the great actors of our time. <laughs> like, like, good God. That seems like a big get, but then also kind of established to, you know, having like a major, you know, well-known male actor as like in a villainous role in these Machete movies, because then in Machete Kills, Mel Gibson was the villain. Yep. As well as Carlos Estevez. 
<laughs> yes. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I still like this movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but. Like, we're not going to get into detail on the, on the storyline. There's about three or four different storylines that are all happening. Yeah. Let's just say that, like, it has all the great hallmarks of classic action movies. Like, Machete's one-liners are hilarious. Oh, my God. They're fantastic. Like, like they're they're so great for reasons that other one-liners are not great. Like, like they're almost like the antithesis of, like, a good Schwarzenegger one-liner because they're so, so much more blunt and so much less clever. <laughs> but the delivery is brilliant. Like, Danny Trejo is basically... Like, he's almost like a very singular actor when you think about it, in many ways. Like, there's no one else who's like him. Mm-hmm. He has a resting badass face. Yeah. Yep. He he just looks badass all the time. He's He's got the weathers, like, the weathering and lines on his face of, like, a life that's been lived. And actually, I believe there's a documentary that is slated to come out about him and his life uh, later on this fall... I think called prisoner number one or number 18 or something like that, that chronicles his life as being uh, a youth in and out of the, uh, the prison system and eventually just kind of reforming his ways and getting into acting and turning his life around and it becoming actually a very nice guy. And so I recall seeing the trailer for this documentary and uh, uh, if you search it up on YouTube, I'm sure you can find it, find it Danny Trejo documentary and attributes a lot of the good things in his life that have uh, come his way from being positive and just being a good person and helping other people out. Yeah. So look for that this fall. Uh, we may mention it as the uh, weeks and months go on, as it gets closer to some kind of release, theatrically, video on demand, streaming services, whatever the case. But it's worth watching because it's all about Danny Trejo, who has just a ridiculous life story and is a character. Also, it, do- it doesn't hurt that he's second cousins with Robert Rodriguez. No, it doesn't. So that that's just the thing out there, too. Yeah. Easy, an easy get when it's a family like that, too. Yeah. And also, hey, Danny, I want to feature you as a badass action hero in a full-blown movie like this. A full-blown, like, movie that's going to get wide theatrical release and probably do pretty well at the box office. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... You're a leading man for once. It's like, I know you get all these bit parts and stuff, you know, because you're like sort of like a character actor at this point, but how would you like to lead and how would you like to be the hero? Oh, okay, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And in classic, uh, like, 80s slash B action movie fashion, the end big fight scene at the end to this movie is just over the top and ridiculous and every bit enjoyable. Oh, yeah. Just the flood of... uh, Machete leading an army, really, of uh, uh, Mexican people against uh, Robert De Niro and, and Steven Seagal's forces um, and Don Johnson's forces, the, the bad guys in this, is just hilarious and, and worth watching for that scene alone. So, Machete, worth it. Still holds up after 10 years. Oh, yeah. Desperado, still holds up after 25 years. Yep. Which, it's 25 years old. I can believe it's 25 years old. I, I would argue that most Robert Rodriguez movies hold up any amount of time after they're made. Good point. True, too. Uh, I did say we had three items. We have spoken of two. We shall touch on the third one in this moment. It is a game, and if we have a chance to talk about a game, we will. Uh, this kind of an important game because it established 
really that you could use Mario in sports with great success. Yeah, so, well, 20 years ago now, yeah, there, was 20 a, years. <laughs> there was a little console that was coming to the end of its life called the Nintendo 64. You know, it had been released a few years before that, but, you know, near the end of the console's life, I think is when Nintendo really started to dip into what I've heard people refer to as weird Nintendo a lot more. Mm-hmm. Weird Nintendo being, like, when you think of normal Nintendo, you think of, like, the characters in their own franchises, like Mario in Mario games. Like, he's in Mario 64, he's in, you know, mainline Mario games like Mario Sunshine, Mario whatever else. Like Mario World. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you think of, like, Link and in the Legend of Zelda games. You think of, you know, Kirby and Kirby games. You think of all the characters basically in their own franchises. But then Smash Brothers comes out and they take them all and put them in a wacky fighting game situation where you can fight Link against Mario, Yoshi against Kirby, whoever else against whoever else. Pikachu against Donkey Kong. Yeah. And all of a sudden people love it. It's like, oh, we can do weird things with these characters that we own and they don't have to be in their own games. So then they started doing weird things with characters. Like they started like this one in particular, like you said, I think it was the first time they put Mario in a sports type game and it seemed to work. I never played it personally, but so I have nothing to say about technically this game. This is Mario tennis I don't know if I mentioned that. I probably no, did. Th- that is the first mention of it. Okay. Yeah. That's but. all right. I spoiled Desperado and <laughs> you spoiled Mario Tennis, so it's balance. Yeah. So Mario Tennis for the N64 is 20 years old, having come out on August 28th of the year 2000. This was the first in the Mario Tennis line of Mario sports games. And you might think, okay, well, this was obviously the first one, like of the Mario Tennis games. No, this was actually the second one. There was a Mario Tennis game prior to this, but there's a good chance no one ever, you never played it, good chance no one in your circle ever played it because it was called Mario's Tennis. For some reason, that apostrophe S really made all the difference, and it was on the Virtual Boy. It was one of the launch titles for the Virtual Boy, and of course no one played it because who the hell had a Virtual Boy? Yeah, I think I tried a Virtual Boy once, and... It was for like two seconds. It might have actually been this game. It might have been Mario's Tennis, but yeah, of course, like you're not really going to think about that. Like, cause like no one had one and mm-hmm. it was an awkward setup and yeah, just overall not great. So it was a tennis game, but then Nintendo revised it and released a uh, better, newer version called Mario Tennis for the N64. And this, I think, was really the first time that Nintendo did a sports game with the Mario universe. Uh, now, we saw Mario in a golf game for NES, and we saw Mario kind of cameo as the referee in Punch-Out and whatnot, so Mario would make appearances here and there in sports games through the years on different Nintendo platforms, but this was the first time that the the whole Nintendo, or not whole Nintendo, but the whole Mario universe came together for one specific sports game. Uh, and also, I believe after this, we saw Mario Golf. Uh, for the N64 and subsequent editions as well. Uh, and then other crazy sports games, like there was a Mario Hoops 3-on-3 game for the DS and whatnot, but this was 
this was in the early stages of the Mario Sports universe. And as I said, new characters from the Mario universe appearing in it. You've got Donkey Kong, you've got Yoshi, uh, you've got Peach, Luigi, obviously, Wario, Bowser. But this also marked the first appearance of Wa-Luigi. Yeah. Because if Wario, or if Mario has an evil doppelganger, clearly Luigi should have an evil doppelganger. Yes. Named Wa-Luigi. <laughs> I feel like I remember at the time making fun of the name Waluigi because I'm like, Wario makes more sense because it's like literally just the, the, the M, M turned into a W. Yeah, flipped Fine. upside down. But like, if you want the same logic, shouldn't it be like Ruigi or something? <laughs> like when you flip an L upside down, it looks more like a lowercase r. Maybe. But like, I guess like they just threw that out the, the window and just went, no, actually people from that universe, all their names start with Wa. So it's like Waluigi, Wario. But they're the only two, so I don't... <laughs> Still waiting for Evil Peach. Yeah, Wa Peach. <laughs> Weech. <laughs> and, and Wowzer is actually just a good guy. Ooh, good call. Yeah, I, I could see that. Uh, so this, I recall, I still have it for my N64. Uh, I played it a whole bunch back in the day because I would actually play my sister on it, and we'd go head-to-head quite often. I recall even there being one Christmas where I think I was uh, at my cousin's house or my aunt's house, and my cousins were there, and they got it for their N64 as well. And so, you know, adults are off in one side having their adult conversations and whatnot and carrying on as they do at Christmas time, and so the kids are kind of left to the, their own devices to entertain themselves. And so, basically, the thing we did all that Christmas was that Christmas gathering was play Mario tennis, and there were some intense and heated rallies, which, after a while, took a toll on your hands because you're using the N64 controller, which was not the most ergonomically uh, well designed. No, it arguably it wasn't well designed at all. And that uh, that joystick in the middle. That's going to wear on your hands and digits after a while, too. Yep. It sure will. So I'm not normally one for uh, going through and unlocking everything in a game, but Mario Tennis had a lot of unlockables, and I believe I am I got uh, almost all of them. Goddamn, the game gets hard as you go along into Star Cup and whatnot, but uh, it's really hard to beat the computer after a while. You're going to have very long, drawn-out rallies, and it's so satisfying once you get that point. And... Given all the time I spent playing Mario Tennis, I, that is how I base my knowledge of uh, an understanding of how tennis actually works. Because <laughs> the point system and sets and, and games and whatnot, the rules are all still the same from normal tennis. It's just with Nintendo and Mario twists. Yeah. You know, characters and you know will have their own abilities. Uh, the courts will be themed and designed around uh, different characters and whatnot, but the, the general rules of tennis all still apply to this. So it's a very fun uh, sports adventure if you are into the Mario sports games. I believe this was one of the first ones along with Mario Golf. But this, this has a bit more action to it than Mario Golf. Yeah. Yeah. Golf is Mario Golf is when you just want a nice relaxing affair. This is, if you want some intense competition, crack open some Mario tennis, especially if you're playing doubles. <laughs> Yes. Which you could do four players, 
So two teams of two, boom, done. Yeah, natively on the system without any sort of like special attachments. That's the cool thing about the N64 that I think was overlooked a little bit. It was actually a four-player system. You know, in hindsight, that's that's cool. I mean, you you also got that with the GameCube, I think, but... You did, yes. It had four ports right on the front. But yeah, like, I don't know. Yes. It was a nice thing. It was a nice thing. Entertaining. Yeah. So, Mario Tennis, 20 years old for your N64. Even older is the movie Desperado, uh, the first big Robert Rodriguez movie from 1995. And uh, a bit younger than that is uh, one of the last best... Robert Rodriguez genre movies? Well, the best one with Danny Trejo in a leading role. Yeah. Playing a character named Machete. Yeah. That came out on September 3rd, 2010, and what a day it was. <laughs> sure was. Just like, what a day this has been that we have spent this time together. You, I, us, we, together, here, podcast. Thanks. Uh, so I am wrapping up this, sh- this week's edition of the program, if you couldn't tell, in a very roundabout fashion, so I shall continue on it in earnest and say thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, boys and, boys and girls, children of all ages. Uh, if you want to see that little telepresence robot punching 3D printout cutouts of Nazis from Wolfenstein, we link to the video uh, of that and also the link to the official page to try it yourself. Let us know if you are able to get through. You can email us, info at the arcade show.com. Uh, and also just find the links on our homepage. And also you can get in touch with us through the social medias. If you haven't already, follow us uh, on Twitter. We are at the arcade show and like our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash the arcade show. And uh, I have to say this too. We will be away next week for it is leading into the Labor Day long weekend next weekend. So, that will be the last kind of throes of summer, quote-unquote, even though summer doesn't officially change over until fall into middle of September. Whatever, it's the last long weekend of summer. We'll take that time to enjoy it however we can, and uh, we shall join you again in two weeks hence. So be good, be safe, all of you out there. Wear your masks. I, I don't care if it's uncomfortable uncomfortable and steams up your glasses. Just do it for God's sakes. Yeah, so we shall join you again in two weeks' time. So uh, until then, good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>